Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, before we start today, it just seems like the news is moving so fast that we go from being completely immersed in one subject and then it's just gone and we're into something else. But it's still happening. The crisis in long-term care is still happening. And what we're involved in now is sort of an exercise in slow journalism. Our show Commons is just telling those stories. Those people are still in there. They're still isolated from their loved ones in most cases. People are still dying. And we're telling their stories episode by episode. Go listen to Commons, subscribe to Commons, and support Commons at commonspodcast.com. Jan Wong, journalist, author, Retired professor, Congrat- <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Joining me from Toronto, uh, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks a lot. Jan, today we are going to talk about I Am Spartacus, CBC staffers break the rules in order to call out systemic racism at the public broadcaster. Management can't fire them all, <laughs> can they? And we're going to talk about cancel culture versus host culture as Wendy Mesley is suspended for saying something bad, I guess. Something. (laughs) This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Thomas Sheridan, Jordan Grace, Tessa, Paul Day, Marcus Savard, Dave Ensing, Zachary Taylor, and Anthony Marco. Hello, my name is Anthony Marco. I'm a labor activist, high school teacher, and podcaster, and I support Canada Land because once, in the early days of podcasting, I appeared on Search Engine and Jesse came on one of my podcasts, and us old school podcasters got to stick together. Keep punching up, keep calling them out, keep learning as you go. If you're pissing big media off, you've got to be doing something right. Jan, I can't think of a better way in to the discussion we're about to have than to just play you this stunning tape from the former host of Yukon Morning, Christine Genier. This was an on-the-air moment from June 15th. Let's just let's just hear what you had to say. Okay. 
Alejandro Rivera, and I need courage. Yeah, 23 minutes after 8 o'clock. That's an interesting choice of song and title song. Title rock. You're my tech director. You control my microphone. You control the levels, and you control whenever my microphone is on. And I'm going to ask you to make a choice now, because that song, I Need Courage, brought me courage. One of the points that Black Lives Matter, the the rally... The protests have been saying is the representation of Indigenous and Black voices on the radio, but beyond that, also not to restrict Indigenous and Black voices on the radio. And I cannot speak for Black reporters. I cannot speak for Black journalists. I do not represent that community, and I will not speak for them. It is difficult to have a voice as strong as mine, knowing that I've been told it is strong, and I hear it now. To be on Tegas-Chun territory, Wolf Clan territory, and not to be able to speak the truth is difficult. It contradicts and conflicts with the journalistic standards and practices of the CBC. This is painful. It makes the job difficult, and it makes it ineffective. We get told that it takes time to move a ship. It's an analogy I've heard often. And all it costs is time for mainstream media, but it is costing us bodies. It is costing us lives. It is costing us the language that has made me so attractive as a personality right now. It is costing us that. And it is costing us our stories. I don't know how to do this job and not be emotional. I don't know how to do this job and not recognize that what it took for me as an indigenous woman to finally feel like someone would come and look for me if I go missing or was murdered was to be recognized as a public personality. And it is in that voice that I need to walk through this world. This is a dangerous thing I'm doing career-wise and job-wise, and I know it. And I make this choice. Everything needs to change now. We are out of time. Rock, I'm going to ask you to go back and throw on a song because I threw off everything. Why don't you throw on that Buffy St. Marie? Little wheels spin and spin. That'll take us into the local and regional news. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So much pain. Yeah. I mean, just to dig into that is necessary. There are references to things that I want to pull apart a little bit. 
specific things that she makes reference to, like the CBC's Journalistic Standards and Practices Guidebook. Like there's there's important stuff that requires some unpacking. But I, I think that to do that like right away, Jan, mm-hmm. like let's return to that later because like there's a bigger picture here, and I, and it's you know there's light and there's heat, and I think that the the heat of that, just the the, the mood of that, and what was it's obvious just listening to that amazing bit of radio that something big was happening there. Yeah. Something yeah. ruptured, you know, something's been rupturing and it ruptured at the CBC and beyond the CBC. I want to try to describe that to people before we get into some of the okay. specific things she was talking about. I guess the context beforehand is, uh, of course, all of this is within the context of Black Lives Matter and the protests but the media context is, uh, as the dominoes fall, the New York Times ran this uh, op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton that uh, called for Trump to send in the troops back when the Trump messaging was about the protesters are anarchists and we need to just cut them down. And there was a revolt. The black journalists of the New York Times uh, in an organized campaign objected and spoke out and I think contradicted the New York Times rules against them doing so. And they said running a piece calling for like an increase in the military presence in the protests puts the lives of black New York Times staffers in danger. Like there are black New York Times staffers who are like they're covering these protests. You want to send, Mm -hmm. you know, and they kept it within the context of, you know, workplace issues like this. This puts. But of course, those people either themselves or their family members are there protesting and to have military there puts their lives in danger. You know, it, it puts black lives in danger in more ways than one to run that that op-ed. Yeah, it was very precise what they were allowed to say. They decided they would only say that it endangers the lives of the black journalists because this is a remarkable sort of revolt at the New York Times. They never do this. They never air their dirty laundry. So it was quite remarkable and actually very, very brave of those journalists to say this. And so that will eventually bring us back to what Christine Genier did as the host of uh, the Yukon radio show. But it, it is a remarkable moment at the New York Times. It is. And that remarkable moment has, I think, inspired many more remarkable moments, um, you know, all over the place, like where everyone now is reading this, uh, watching these videos from Hal Johnson of Body Break mm-hmm. about how that about how Body Break participate. Who knew that that show began as a response to racism? It happened back in you now April of 1988. And I was wanted to be a sports reporter and I went to TSN and they were very open to see me. I went in and submitted my tape. They loved it. And I got uh, hired by Jack Hutchison at 11 o'clock in the morning. And he was very enthusiastic about me joining TSN. At two o'clock that afternoon, I got a phone call and he said, uh, sorry, but the higher up said, because I'm black and and uh, they already had Mark Jones, who's now with ESPN, has been there for many years. Because they already have a black reporter, they don't want to have two black reporters. Yeah, like there's a quota yeah. that they never announced before. And, and we're only hearing about this now in the context of Black Lives Matter. People are speaking up about all these things that have happened all these years. And everybody kept quiet about it in the media. Yeah, so we're hearing these testimonials. Some of them go back 15, 20 years. People are sharing their experiences, but it is exceedingly rare. You know, you say that the New York Times journalists don't air this stuff in public. Well, CBC staffers don't either. Well, they did. And I I think the best thing we could do is just sort of like share their words because they wanted these words heard. Jen, will you go back and forth with me? We'll just read some of these tweets that CBC, like current CBC staffers have been talking about this. Let's just share what they had to say. Sure. 
Okay, I'm going to start with Adrian Harewood, who anchors uh, CBC TV's 6 o'clock news broadcast in Ottawa and their, uh, their weekly TV news magazine. Here's what he tweeted. It's June 2006, my first week hosting the CBC Ottawa Drive Home Show. A dream job. My first permanent gig. I'm back in my hometown. A respected journalist in the newsroom says to my face, I'm a token. I'm paralyzed. I say nothing. I vow that it'll never happen again. Hashtag black in the newsroom. And now this is Nanaba Duncan, host of podcast playlist and host producer of CBC Fresh Air. Second floor kitchenette. A colleague and I are talking about how I'm getting more chances to be on air. He informs me it's because I am black and a woman. There is no mention of my skills. I am stunned. I say nothing, but I've never forgotten. This one is is a tweet from Adrian Chung, who uh, who doesn't work at the CBC anymore, but who used to work on the National. Right now, he is the uh, the co-host and producer of This Matters, which is the Toronto Star's daily news podcast. And uh, this is what he tweets. This also reminds me of the time where the former executive producer of The National had a full conversation with me thinking that I was the now current host of the show who was also Asian Canadian. Of course, he's referring to Andrew Chang. Adrian Chung was confused with Andrew Chang by the executive producer. Every now and then he would see me in passing and call me Andrew. And then he follows up. If anyone is interested, that former executive I mentioned in a previous tweet has since uh, reached out and, well, see for yourself. And then he shares an email where the former executive who seems mortified by this wants to apologize, but he addresses his apology email to Adrian, Dear Andrew. <laughs> you know what? I read that at the time and I didn't understand it. I My eyes completely went over the <laughs> Dear Andrew. This is the first time I realized. Okay. I mean, it's funny in a way, but I mean, it's not funny, but like, oh, no, it's not funny. It's not funny. It's terrible. Oh, my God. Okay. So responding to Adrian Chung's tweet, several current CBC employees shared similar experiences of having senior colleagues mix up their names. CBC journalist Taranam Kamlani tweeted to Vanmala Subramanian, remember that time a senior producer called me by your name? Then CBC reporter Tashana Reed tweeted, The number of times I've been called Nicole or Tamika in the newsroom. And then CBC news journalist Artie Pohl tweeted, I get called Reshmi and Natasha all the time. Also have been told, and it said behind my back, that I should change the spelling of my name if I want people to pronounce it correctly. And then Marivelle Tarouk host of CBC's Our Toronto and CBC News Weekend said, and our coping mechanism is to make a joke about it, to hide the shame of being viewed without an identity, to be mistaken for a different journalist by a viewer while on vacation is one maddening thing. For it to come from a colleague in the workplace, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so there are a lot more tweets where that came from, most of them from, many of them from former CBC journalists, and some of those go much further, Jan, than, you know, people talking about getting their names mixed up. They talk about having to actually leave the CBC because of systemic racism, and those tweets are definitely worth reading, too. You can read tweets from Kim Wheeler, Rick Harp, uh, Wab Rice, a lot of Indigenous journalists basically saying that, like, 
I don't want to speak for all of them. Go read the tweets individually. But people are saying, like, this was not a place where they felt like they could grow and progress. Uh, Some of them saying they had to leave on account of these issues. And that might seem like much stronger than these name mix up incidents. But that would be to miss the point, I think, because the fact is when we're talking about those current CBC staffers, you talk about bravery. They know that saying anything like that could cost them their job. They are very consciously mm-hmm. breaking mm-hmm. the rules. That's right. And that's what we heard uh, referenced in the in the opening monologue, CBC's Journalistic Standards and Practices Guidebook. It is explicit about this. Here, I'll, I'll read the, the, the part that matters. CBC journalists do not express their personal opinions, their own personal opinion, because it affects the perception of impartiality. We maintain the same standards no matter where we publish, on CBC platforms or in other media outside the CBC. And they mean it. I mean, we reported in the past, oh, yeah. Jan, about uh, Amar Khan, who was a CBC reporter uh, out in, in Winnipeg, who tweeted when Don Cherry was uh, just like spewing racist stuff, he tweeted that this was xenophobic and this was racist and deplorable. And CBC made him remove the tweet and he was not at the CBC anymore after that. Right, right. You know, so this is like, these are the stakes it's really worth you know remarking upon and, and 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 what happened here and I think it was not a coordinated thing. Each one of these CBC journalists who still works there said I've had enough because and this is what I'm taking from that opening monologue as well. The journalistic standards and practices. If you're telling me that I can't speak out on matters of controversy or my own opinion and my own like humanity is suddenly a matter of controversy, you know, mm-hmm. then it becomes a safety issue. And there are greater principles in the CBC's uh, mission statement and and journalistic principles about speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. So we're really getting at a basic idea of does this concept of journalistic objectivity and and impartiality, is it coming into direct conflict with safety and like the truth? It's utterly hypocritical. And the New York Times and the Globe and Mail and the CBC have been utterly hypocritical about advocating for free speech. We try to get people all the time to talk about their workplace conditions, to talk about their personal opinions. We try to persuade them even at the peril of their own jobs. But our own workplaces tell us you're not allowed to say anything. And until now, most people have shut up. But you saw, as you mentioned at the New York Times, they started talking and some white journalists supported their black colleagues, you're seeing it break down at the CBC. And that's why there's so much pain, because you have to sort of have this dichotomy in your brain as a CBC journalist. Oh, I can go and talk about this issue, but I can't talk about my own situation. I'm not allowed to. This is called standards. This is wrong if I ever say anything about myself. And you could you could hear the pain in Christine Genier's voice when she was trying to say, I can't take this anymore. Yeah. And and you could hear her say, you know, I, I've been told to kind of just like, you're going to, you're going to slowly turn the ship. It takes time. You can change it from within, but enough is enough. And this is costing us bodies and we have to do something now before I want to talk about the golden mail with you, because you have a very, an incredible experience that parallels everything that's happening now that I want to get to. But uh, before we leave the CBC story, I want to just recognize the beauty of this, uh, I think, ad hoc impromptu movement. And, you know, Adrian Chung kind of addressed this in one of his follow-up tweets. He said, a final point I want to make while people are listening. Many of you are asking who that executive is who kept messing up my name. And people are guessing and trying to figure it out. And, and most of the guesses have been wrong. And he says, that's the problem. 
if there are dozens of people who could have been the person I was talking about, <laughs> you've got a structural problem. And I want to say, because I think a lot of people are reading this as like petty, vindictive, you're trying to get somebody fired. And all of those CBC tweets, not one of them that I read actually identified by name the person who did the microaggression or the person who did right. who was responsible for it. Because that's not the point, as I take it. You take all those tweets together, these little things, these little indignities that people suffer, and it adds up to, you know, they're trying to describe systemic racism. Yeah, it's a culture. It's a workplace right. culture. Because, you know, we're so wed to this rotten apple theory that there are some, you know, racist evil people who, if we just get rid of them, these institutions will be fine. And there's such a thin skin around, you know, accepting that you've done something wrong. And I have, and a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. we carry these structures within us. Mm -hmm. So are, are we finally getting to the core of it, of actually saying like, no, we, we have something bigger to address than that. So, you know, this is a, uh, it's, it's a beautiful movement and it's politically very astute because what these journalists are forcing the CBC to do is you're either going to have to reprimand and discipline all of them, every one of those journalists, or you're going to have to change the rules. That's right. It's really brilliant. It's really something. And I've, you know, this has been a story that we've been covering in drips and drabs over the years. And to see it just come out like this and people just demand this is this is a really it's a moment that is just shining everything in this blinding light. And it does feel possible with everything awful that's happening right now that something could change. And this is like every workplace is going through this right now. But when it's the media, it's about the power to describe how this is for right. everybody. They know, you know how to talk and they know how to use social media. It happens everywhere, I'm sure. This is what they're talking about happens in other workplaces. But for media, they know how to speak. They know how to get the message out. So that's why it's it's worth paying attention to. I want to say something about being a visible minority or whatever you want to call it, a person of color. There's two things I want to say about the globe. I want to say that it was really odd working there when they used to be at Front and Spadina, which is, you know, Spadina is the street that leads right into Chinatown. So I want to say that when I'm walking around the Globe and Mail, everybody says, hello, they know who I am. I think I was practically the only... Asian at that time. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I think I was. So I would see Asian coming. They go, oh, hi, Jan Wong. Now, at lunchtime, I would occasionally trek up Spadina to go and eat Chinese food because it was a wasteland in those days down at French and Spadina. This is what was so bizarre. And it didn't happen once. It happened over and over again. I would cross paths with other Globe journalists as I'm heading up or down Spadina and I'd recognize them, and I'd be all happy to see them, and I'd say hi. And you know what happened? They didn't they see you. me. No, they didn't yeah. see me. They filtered me out. They go, oh, I'm on Spadina, another Chinese person. I don't know who this Chinese person is. Even though I said hello, they didn't answer. They didn't see me. It was the weirdest. It was like I was a ghost. Once I left the Globe and Mail newsroom, and I was on the street in the vicinity of Chinatown, I was invisible. I turned from being a visible minority to an invisible minority. And then the other thing I wanted to say is this thing about people getting people of color mixed up. I did a column on that. I think I was really annoyed one day and I decided to write a column. And we had two brown journalists at the Globe and Mail newsroom and their names were a little bit similar, but not really. And I went over to them and I said, so I just want to know, do the editors often confuse you? And they said, oh, my God, all the time. 
and one covered education and one covered health care. It was Carolyn Alfonso and Carolyn Abraham. So their first names were similar, spelled differently. But the number of wrong emails they got, they got editors walking over to their desks to give them stories, and they'd say, oh, I don't cover education. You want her. It was humiliating. And and for a, a control group, I went over to two guys who actually had the same name at the Globe and Mail, and I said, do you ever get confused? Two white guys. And they never got confused. Mm-hmm. And then I interviewed a professor at U of T who specialized in, in race. And she said, it's a matter of hierarchy. If you're lower in the hierarchy, they feel no compulsion to actually go to the trouble of telling who you are. But if your boss is a person of color, then your subordinates will not confuse you. So it has to also to do with power. It's not just race. I think this is fascinating stuff, and I and I think it's like I have totally done that. I'm sure I, I like in the, in the past, and I think that it's the power dynamic is a part of it. And I think that when you don't have a lot of people of different ethnicities, mm-hmm. uh, that becomes like a, a trait that speaks louder when you're around people who are of the same type. Then the smaller differences that designate this person as a separate individual than that person seem more pronounced, right? Yeah. But there's this like there's this feeling that if you actually engage with the fact that that's an issue, I mean, then you'll actually take the time to figure out who's who if you can accept that that's an issue. That if you, you have. actually get to know the reporter, yeah. and you just don't see them as a cog, then you won't make this kind of mistake. It's because they don't yeah. care about their reporters. I believe they don't care. Mm-hmm. And so they they just see you as, oh, you're you're the brown reporter. What happened at the Globe and Mail? The Globe and Mail is interesting right now because, you know, the National Post has had uh, staffers talk about problems at work. CBC, everyone is doing what's mm-hmm. happening at the CBC, not the Globe and Mail. Globe and Mail has not had journalists of color talk about these experiences as far as I know. And I know that they that's not because it hasn't happened there. I know that Sonny Dillon left the Globe and Mail for these issues. So why is there still the silence of the Globe and Mail? And I thought about Jan Wong. And so here's here's how I remember to nutshell your story. Uh, back in 2006, you were basically like a star reporter there, a feature writer, at a time when the Globe and Mail, I think, was pretty progressive and cutting edge in merging of reporting with editorial in a voicey way, having people with real reporter journalistic chops actually filing stories telling you what happened, but yeah. also giving you their point of view. And the, w- the way that we yeah. signify that in newspapers is there's a photograph of the journalist. We were merging those two things together, and that's that was where journalism was heading. And uh, you were kind of unique in your ability to do because you're an Asian woman you could do things like uh, pose as a maid and go undercover (laughs) you were doing kind of experiential immersion and you had voice and you had amazing reporter chops and you were doing kind of voice on the ground Mm -hmm. stuff I think I got it right so far they send you to Montreal following the Dawson College shooting there's a piece that you write it was on the front page the editor-in-chief Eddie Greenspawn he read it he approved it And basically, you, I think, put your finger on what was really at the core of this, which was that there had been three mass shootings in Quebec's history in recent years, and they had all been from people who were not pure lang, who were not, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, pure wool, pure blood Quebecois. Uh, They were uh, immigrants or the children of immigrants, and they were racialized, and you talked about these acts of violence in the context of a Mm -hmm. province that still talks about racial purity. And this was something that I think would only have come from a non-white member of the Global Mail's. I mean, you know, maybe not. Maybe somebody else could have written about it, but they they didn't, and you did. Well, and I was also was- a Montrealer, right? So I grew up there. I, I understood. 
Yeah. And they were happy to publish you. And then all hell came down upon you. The premier Mm -hmm. decried your column. Um, The prime minister, Stephen Harper, denounced your column. And it was taken as this is just a baseless argument that that this Jan Wong has. The French press ran cartoons of you as like a buck-toothed racial caricature. You were hated and decried, and the Globe took the side of the racists and the politicians who denounced you, and they threw you under the bus. Yes. And that was sort of the beginning of the end of your time at the Globe and Mail. Did I get that all right? Perfect. Can I just write that all down? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be writing a a final chapter on what happened because I I wrote a book about all of this out of the blue, and I'm going to write a new chapter. But yes, that's what happened. And it's so remarkable when you think about the Black Lives Matter today that this newspaper did this to me. I was getting so many racist emails. This is before we had Twitter. So I, I was getting so many racist hate emails and and misogynist, of course, you know, uh, horrible stuff. Being a female also is really bad. And uh, this was only the era of email. But I got so many emails into my inbox, I couldn't work. I couldn't function because I couldn't see any important emails from this avalanche of hate. And then what you haven't mentioned is that these racists in Quebec went after my family's business, went after my father's restaurant. And they called for a boycott, but they didn't just call for a boycott. They attacked the restaurant as being filthy. And that because we were Chinese, we were selling rats Uh and cats. And it was intolerable. And I was starting to have a complete breakdown, but I didn't recognize it because I'd never had a a mental breakdown before. I'd never gotten depressed. But I I did go to the Globe and Mail and to the editor, and I said, you have to speak out. You have to speak up for me. This is a racist attack. I'm getting attacked racially for a story I did. And I believe for the first time in Canadian history, a reporter's family's business is getting attacked. And I need you to speak out. I don't want to speak out because I don't want to be the story. I would like to keep my head down. And they said, no. (laughs) They actually said they would not do this. And I was kind of stunned. And then I think I, I got a really bad death threat to the office. And I went to security with the death threat. And I was so scared. And the librarian, I was in the library opening my mail because I multitask, right? I'm trying to get research. And then she saw it over my shoulder. She said, you got to call security. So I went and the security guard came, put on gloves, took it. And then they called me down. The head of security called me down and said, you know, we're not going to deal with this. He just told me I'm, they're not going to help me. Mm-hmm. And and he didn't even make sure I got home okay. I remember I, I thought, I don't know how to get home. And so I think I just... I just took the subway. I was so, so much in shock. And then the police came to my house and they took it very seriously. So, wow, you can't get any much worse than an employer doing that to a visible minority person of color, female reporter than what the Globe and Mail did to me. It's just incredible, right? Do you see connections when you read these accounts from journalists today, 14 years later? Yeah, and I I think everything is timing, right? In journalism, everything is timing. People often do stories and they get no notice. And then 10 years later, someone does the same story and it just takes off. So I think it's a matter of 
society. Where is society at? Well, of course, the globe muzzled me. They wouldn't let me tell anyone. I couldn't tell my colleagues. They just said I wasn't allowed to talk. So I didn't talk. I just, I went home. I became very ill and nobody found out anything. So today, I don't think this could happen. I don't know. I don't think it could happen, but I don't know. It's the same management at the Globe. It's still Philip Crawley, mm-hmm. the British guy. Yeah. And that's probably not a coincidence either. I don't think it's a coincidence. But Eddie Greenspawn is long gone. Almost everyone involved either quit or was fired. I think Sylvia Stead is still there. She was one of my chief tormentors. She's like the editor in charge of, I don't know, ombudsman. I don't know what she does. But could it happen today? I don't think so. And here's the difference. Social media. Yeah. But also, I was very obedient. I checked with the union. The union said, no, if they, if your employer orders you not to talk, you don't talk. Well, you know, today, I don't think people would listen to that. I might have disagreed with you a week or two ago because the common thread that I see is gagging journalists and forbidding them, putting them out there into the public conversation, putting them out there with, with, with hot topics, controversy, and then gagging them and binding their hands, not letting them speak out. And what I see happening now is we're not taking it anymore. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? We're not taking it anymore. Yeah. Because it made me really sick. I mean, I was clinically depressed for almost two years because the racist attacks are one thing. You sort of expect that and it comes with the job, okay? I think that comes with the job. But the attacks on the family and the inability or the refusal of your employer to protect you. That's what I believe made me sick. Of course, we don't really know. But I believe that betrayal, that utter betrayal for a a company that makes its money off freedom of speech and protecting human rights, for them not to do that for me, it was completely devastating. And I just got so sick. And then, of course, they... (laughs) They cut off all, they cut off my insurance and my sick pay. I mean, it went, it got worse and worse and worse, but it was like, wow, they really did this. And then, and then they went after me after we settled and they clawed back the entire settlement. That's what I'm going to write about. Cause you talked about it. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. write about, it. they clawed back my entire settlement because they said I, I broke an NDA. Well, <laughs> it was an NDA on a memo, but, but. You know, you, this is what we're talking about today. Journalists being gagged and no longer taking it. We don't do gag orders. We're like, that's not the job. Yeah, but the Globe and Mail reporters are still quiet. Yeah. So it tells you what the culture there is. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Jan, um, let's duly note a couple of things. I want to duly note that something went unreported that should have gone reported, or at least it, it went unreported for a while. Uh, Liberal MP Marwan Tabara was arrested <laughs> yeah. on allegations uh, over, over Easter weekend, uh, a while back now. He was arrested on allegations that he broke into a home that he'd been stalking for months and that he assaulted a man and a woman inside. And this is like a liberal member of parliament and he, <laughs> and he gets arrested. He goes to jail. He, he does his bail hearing over like a video conference and he just goes back to his work as an MP. doesn't mention it. Nobody reports on it until I think it was Adrian Humphreys, the national post. The cops didn't release any kind of press release. And I don't know, this is right when the pandemic was, was getting going. It was also video con- like, you know, it's not like a, you're at the courthouses where you might find out about that as a reporter. There are lots of reasons why that might have gone slipped through the cracks. And certainly the fact that um, there are fewer reporters than ever might be one of them. I'm duly noting now, not that this happened, though people should know that it happened. I'm duly noting um, the response of Globe and Mail journalist John Ibbotson. His take on the fact that this went unreported for so long was as follows. He says, Guelph is a news desert. (laughs) When the Guelph Mercury closed four years ago, I tweeted, congratulations, city council. You can now do whatever you damn well please. I should have added police. So Guelph is a news desert. I guess that's why it happened. That will come as news to the reporters at Mm GuelphToday.com. which is a online community news site that is a village media news site. They have reporters who cover Guelph. They, I think they have like two or three. The Guelph Mercury at the end had five. It certainly doesn't have as many reporters as the Mercury. Arguably, it's not as good as the Mercury. But uh, to call it a news desert is, I mean, I would say he's insulting those reporters who wake up every day and try to cover Guelph. But I doubt that John Ibbotson knows that they exist or that Guelph today exists. And I'm picking on John Ibbotson just because it's become this kind of mantra of uh, legacy news people that when a newspaper closes, that's it. It's game over. And Mm -hmm. that's why we need uh, the government to bail out newspapers or Google (laughs) and Facebook. And the only people who could possibly cover a community are newspapers. Mm -hmm. And... There are signs of hope. There are companies that are popping up and some of them are thriving and Village Media is doing well. Village Media is one of the only companies in Canada that is hiring more reporters every year. 
and the you know the arrogance of these legacy journalists to kind of mouth off about how poorly served a community is when like he obviously hasn't done the most basic research to see is it a news desert or is someone there mm-hmm. it also blinds them to the to the fact that it is when papers like the mercury which were underserving their communities it's when they die that there's a market opportunity for somebody to start a new digital news site mm-hmm. and we've just written them out of the picture of how we're going to have news in Canada in the future And the whole point at the beginning was, how are we going to get people to reinvest in news and and start new things? But we were actually just kind of erasing them from Mm -hmm. whatever rebuilding is happening. And I want to duly note that that's not cool. Duly noted. What do you have? Well, as you mentioned, I've retired. And uh, it's because I was just offered a, a deal I couldn't say no to. But what timing because I panic moved out of Fredericton. I was teaching at St. Thomas University. I panic moved out of there as the borders were closing because I was leaving my apartment because I'd taken this retirement package. But now I'm thinking, oh my God, journalism already in trouble now is supposed to be taught online. And first of all, by professors who don't know how to teach online. I mean, it's really pathetic. But the core of journalism itself cannot be taught online. I don't think so. And the university just sent me a a notice that all courses in the fall are going online and they are asynchronous. And I didn't even know what asynchronous meant. What that means is you don't actually have a class. You're supposed to tape something and the students go and look at it whenever they feel like it, which means never. They'll never look at it. But you don't have a class, so there's no discussion. You can't teach journalism. Here's the reason why you can't teach online. Because journalists have to learn how to knock on doors, how to basically stalk people, like wait on the sidewalk until the person you've been trying to talk to comes out of their home. I mean, I've done that. That's the only way you can reach people sometimes. Sometimes you doorstop them in their office. So how are you going to teach a bunch of kids that you don't do it on Zoom? Like to me, I, I would always forbid my students from doing Skype interviews. I just said, no, you can't do that. You have to go and talk to them in person. You have to go to their kitchen and you have to spend two hours there. I don't want less than two hours. So I'm, I'm just so glad that I'm not teaching journalism anymore, but I'm really worried about the future of journalism. And everything was going so well with journalism schools up until now. (laughs) Uh, Congratulations on your retirement, Jen. Uh, Duly noted. Jan, have you followed this Wendy Mesley story? Yes, I have. But there's not that much to follow because it's all so secret. It is. I mean, we broke this and like... It, yeah, congratulations. It, I saw that. Thank you. It was kind of just like a gimme. It wasn't something that we... Uh, like, it just kind of happened. And, over the transom? Um, it came in over the transom? You don't even know what a transom is, right? I know the <laughs> phrase. The phrase that came in. I'm, I'm familiar with the cliche, not the actual technology. Oh, the transom is that thing, that little window over the door before they had air conditioning so you could open this little window over your door without any risk of getting burglarized. That's the transom. See, I'm learning things from you even in your retirement. You see how old I am? It's a good thing I retired. Uh, all right. Uh <laughs> Last Thursday, June 4th, uh, senior management within CBC News were made aware of an incident involving Wendy Mesley. CBC head of public affairs Chuck Thompson says in a statement, while we investigate further, Wendy will not be hosting The Weekly. 
always respecting the privacy rights of our employees. We have nothing more to add. That's what they told us. Uh, we got an email from Wendy Mesley herself where she said, in the context of an editorial discussion about current affairs regarding race, I used a word that should never be used. It was not aimed at anyone. I was quoting a journalist we were intending to interview on a panel discussion about coverage of racial inequality. She says that she immediately apologized to her coworkers. She recognizes that this is a word that no one like me should ever use. I made a big mistake and I promised to change my behavior. I was careless with my language and wrong to say it. Regardless of my intention, I hurt people. And for that, I am very sorry. And I am also deeply ashamed. CBC took her off the air and her show is gone for the rest of the season. Some people are saying it's gone forever. What do you think? Oh, I have several things that I think about this. One is they're not telling us what she said and they're not telling us which journalist she's quoting. But I also want to say something about quoting and whatever the word is. The thing is with the, some of these words, they, they are really awful. And for a, a white person to say them, they don't understand the pain or sort of the, the scar that it creates when you use that word. So you have to use, like, let's assume it was the N word. You notice I didn't say it because I won't say it, but you have to say the N word so we know what you're talking about. But if you say the actual word, it is a trigger for anyone in that room. It is really painful. Like for me, there's words that are awful. And if you say them, and even if you say them in the context of a news story, you shouldn't. You just shouldn't. Because it, it puts the person whose race or ethnicity is being mentioned almost at a crossroads. Do they have to say something? Do they have to rearrange their face? So white people have to learn that even if you're quoting somebody, you don't use the actual word. But should she have been suspended for this? We don't know what the word is. And we don't know who she was talking about. And I think one of those black journalists is calling on the CBC to tell us and there's a petition they're asking journalists to sign. And I never signed petitions, but I did sign that one because I think you got to tell people what happened. This is so much like the Chinese Communist Party. You know, they just sort of allude to things, but you don't know what what happened. It's Desmond Cole. He was one of the journalists who was uh, booked on that panel. And he has put out this letter that you signed where he says, as one of the journalists that Mesley intended to interview, I would like to know which of us she was quoting. Exactly. And from what source? I would also like to know why a white journalist who is presumably sorry for her racist language is explaining that she was repeating a black person, kind of putting exactly. this in onto this black person. So I have thoughts as well. And the first one is just uh, I, I'm in agreement with you. Like, I, I feel that she shouldn't have said it if it's and, you know, we were not able to confirm to a place where we were confident that we could report it. Uh, Jonathan Goldsby, you know, he tweeted, I couldn't get this to a place where I would report it, but it's, it's, it's pretty much uh, the word that you think it is. So yeah. it seems, it seems like it is the N word is yeah. what she used. Yeah. And um, assuming that that is the word that she used, I feel both that she shouldn't have said it for the reasons that you describe. She's a powerful person there. And for any black staffer or racialized staffer or anybody to hear that, it, it, it just like, it could have, either a triggering, but like it, it just puts them on the spot in a way, whether it's intended or not, it's a power play that just doesn't work out well. It's really bad. But I'm going to say something else. And I want to know if you agree with this or if you, if you know where I'm coming from. 
there is a world of difference. And this is all this is all going by Wendy Mesley's account of how it was said. We don't have any corroboration of that. Nobody else, none of the producers who were present there or the CBC or Mesley, you know, it's only Mesley herself who has said that this is how it happened in the context of this editorial meeting. So assuming that that's all true, saying things off the air and on the air, there's a world of difference. And an editorial discussion where you are trying to figure your way through ideas and words so that you can decide how to present something in a news broadcast, it has to be a place where you can be wrong. That is the training ground for arguments and ideas and framing. It's where you talk with your colleagues and you take different angles and you take different perspectives and you you kind of can free associate and you quote the people who are going to be on. And people often say dumb things or they say, let me test this out. What if I were to argue this? What if I were to argue that? And I don't think that that necessarily, if that's how it happened, gets her off the hook. I think that maybe a reprimand or a suspension is in order because I think it's not too far to say, even in that context, there are some things you shouldn't say. But I don't put that as an equivalent to her calling someone that or saying it on the air. It's completely different. And I do, as a journalist, I am worried about an environment where people are afraid to be wrong in a newsroom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, I agree with you. I agree with you that an editorial meeting off the air has to be a safe place where people can sincerely talk about, can, they can bat ideas around, they can be the devil's advocate, they can say things. That's very, very important in a news meeting that you have a devil's advocate who will say all the unpleasant things. But the difference here, if she said that word, is she said it. Instead of using the less offensive replacement word. I, I really do think you can't say this in anybody's presence. It's awful. I mean, I was at a dinner last night with someone sitting outside socially distancing, and he talked about something that happened to him in the South, and someone had used the N-word, and he actually repeated the whole thing. The difference was it didn't bother me as much because I, I'm not black. But if he had used a word about Jewish people or something, and my husband's Jewish, I would have felt it more. So I think to be on the safe side, you just don't use those words. You use the replacement for them. You use the abbreviation. I just think yeah. we have to change. But I agree with you that meetings about news stories must be a safe place. And she can get a reprimand. If that's what happened, and ultimately, I you know, I, I kind of arrive where you started. We don't even know what the hell happened. Because yeah, we this, don't know what happened. And they need to tell us. She's a public figure. And they're hiding behind, oh, we're not going to use the word because then we'd be repeating the sin. Yeah. But no, like you can use the code. You can, use, you can, you can say use the, the N-word. And because the context is everything here. First of all, is she telling the truth that she was quoting somebody? Uh, yeah, we need to hear from the black journalist. I, I mean, the context is everything. Like, did she say it for the first time? Had she said it before? Had anyone said to her, can you not do that? That actually kind of has an impact on yeah. me. And then, you know, I've seen as much as I'll advocate for 
safe space rules in, in newsrooms. I've also seen those rules abused by people in power to say, hey, this is a tough talk and no bullshit, uh, yeah. hard knuckled environment. And I'm the senior journalist here and I'm going to talk all they're going to swear, use misogynistic language. And it's all power play because yeah. it's, it's like who can actually exert those right. those rules is often breaks down on right. hierarchical lines. And advice, you know, they have this whole like contract about how you're going to hear all kinds of stuff. This is a hardcore environment. And that became a shield for them to sexually harass and, and you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of things happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I think it's a blanket cover, but but yeah. that's why we just need journalism applied to this and we're doing yeah. our best, but nobody's talking. And, it, and yeah. it, all, it all unfolded in a weird way. Like, you know, Jonathan got a tip that something had been said and he was looking into it and he asked the CBC for comment and then... Mesley just gets ahead of the story, sends her statement, gives her like, oh, we don't take a press release and just say that's what happened. Yeah. You know, we want to know you if you were reporting it. That's it. But we, you know, there, there were other producers present who can tell us if that's what happened and if it happened before. Uh, so, you know, I know that there's a lot of senior journalists out there who see this as evidence of the CBC, like things have just gone. Political correctness has now gone even more wild. And Mesley is its new sacrificial lamb. And this is a huge injustice. I saw those tweets and I don't agree yeah. entirely. I think people who are white have to understand that when you use those words, it's like sticking a knife in your colleague. You can't do that. They don't understand how it feels. It's horrible. So stop it and figure out a a way to use a code word instead. It's less triggering. You got to talk. I don't want to censor anyone, but you don't stick knives into your colleagues. And I didn't see any people of color journalists. I didn't see any non-white journalists saying, what's the problem? Wendy Mesley is wonderful. I only saw the white journalists saying, hey, you know, so I'd like to hear from some non-white journalists at the CBC what they think, because that's just my opinion, that it's like a knife. I want to know what happened. And I I also just, uh, what's happening now is like a full on, it's a changing of the guard and our job is to document it. Good. Yeah. So that's what we're going to try to do. Jan, thank you. Thank you. This was really, really interesting. Yeah, I think so too. Everybody, that's Canada Land Shortcuts uh, for the week. It has never been easier to support the work that we do here. Get ad-free versions of these shows. Just click on the link in your podcast show notes and it will plop an ad-free version of Canada Land right into your app for $5 Canadian a month or just go to canadalandshow.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Jan, where can people find you? They can find me at Writer Wong on Twitter, at Writer Wong, W-R-I-T-E-R-W-O-N-G. Get it? Writer Wong? I get it. And uh, <laughs> and, and Jan Wong is going to have more time to write now. So I'm looking forward to that. Our website is canadalandshow.com. There is a new episode of Oppo up this week. There is a new episode of Commons this week. Listen to our podcast. We got good stuff for you. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. 